Hello, Bermuda. Welcome to Best Health, presented by the Royal Gazette and RG Megs. This is your go-to health podcast, connecting you with Bermuda's finest in health and wellness. A big shout out to our sponsor for this episode, the Lindos Group of Companies. Why go anyplace else? Now let's dive in. Well, hello there. Today is not just another episode of the Best Health Podcast. It's a special one. As I take the mic for the first time as your host, I want to share a bit of my story, who I am, and where I'd like to see this podcast going. First off, my name is Carrie Lee Astwood. Some of you may have seen me floating around social media as Carrie Lee Fitness. My journey began with struggles around body image, leading to battles with weight, yo-yo dieting, eating disorders, um, and things like that. But with resilience and the right tools and support, I eventually overcame these challenges, not once, but twice, shedding significant weight, especially postpartum after regaining nearly 70 pounds after initially losing close to 100. These experiences ignited my passion for health and well-being, pushing me into the world of fitness and nutrition coaching. With nine years as a personal trainer, a certified nutrition and mindset coach, and as the CEO of Carrie Lee Fitness Coaching, I'm here not just as a host, but as someone who's walked the path, ready to guide you on your health journey and to help you navigate through the misinformation that is the health and fitness world. Last year, I had the pleasure of being a guest on this show, so it is such an honor to be back again. Over the next little while as your host, it's my intention to, you know, shed some light on popular health and fitness topics. I feel like there a lot of these topics end up being so black and white. It can be so confusing to know what to believe, you know, whether it's, you know, I just want to be a bit healthier. You may you may think that you need to completely do a 180 on your life and, and buy really expensive groceries and, you know, be in the gym each and every day. And I just want to simplify health for you and be here to, you know, chat like a friend, um, you know, someone that you can relate to. I have plans to bring on some amazing guests, but I would definitely love to hear from you about what topics are most important to you, what you'd like to hear about. I myself am very passionate about mindset and mental health and overall wellness. So yeah, with that being said, today we're diving into part two of the initial series that I recorded last year. Um, where we debunked some popular fitness myths. So I'm going to be addressing some new myths that many of us may have heard or believed before. I know I definitely did along my journey. So myth number one, we're going to dive deep into a sweet topic that's been causing quite a stir, and that is sugar. The big question, does sugar directly cause fat gain? Let's unwrap this myth piece by piece. So, where did this whole sugar is the enemy idea come from? Well, back in 1972, Professor John Yudkin published a book titled Pure, White, and Deadly, How Sugar is Killing Us and What We Can Do to Stop It. 
Sounds a little ominous, right? Uh, this book was one of the first to suggest that sugar might be the bad guy in our diets, and uh, I think there's a few more like that out there now. Uh, but here's the thing. Just two years before Yudkin's book, the iconic Seven Country Study was published, which shifted the blame from sugar to dietary fat. So what a plot twist. So which one is it? In recent years, there has been a surge in the popularity of blood glucose monitors for the general public here. I'm not talking about those with diabetes, but, you know, the everyday person wearing blood glucose monitors, you know, tracking their sugar intake. And in turn, they're monitoring what they eat. They're anxiously watching these numbers. They're fearing insulin spikes, concerned that they're going to store extra body fat if they receive a high reading. But here's the thing. A rise in blood glucose after eating is completely normal if you're a healthy individual. It's like checking your heart rate after a sprint and being shocked that it's high. It's supposed to be. Now, insulin isn't the villain it's made out to be. Rather, it's like that friend who helps you, you know, move your stuff into your new apartment. Or, you know, a diligent worker ensuring that sugar gets to where it needs to go in your body. Insulin takes glucose from our blood and moves it into our cells. But here's where the plot thickens. While sugar does stimulate insulin release, it's not the only culprit. Like, carbs do it. Protein does it, so if we're pointing fingers, let's not just single out sugar. And remember, it's, it's not about how often insulin is released, but how it's managed throughout the day. Balance is key. Now, let's talk about sugar's impact on insulin sensitivity. Some argue that high sugar intake affects our body's response to insulin, but research shows that when calorie intake is balanced, sugar doesn't seem to have a significant impact on insulin sensitivity. The real MVPs for maintaining insulin sensitivity? Regular exercise and a balanced diet. No surprise there. So this is your, this is your sign to lace up those sneakers, go out for a walk, get in one of those workouts, and fill your plate with colorful veggies and lean protein. Now, I want to share a personal story. A while back, I embarked on a 30-day Kit Kat challenge. Yes, you heard that right. Every day for one month, I indulged in a Kit Kat, all while maintaining a calorie deficit. The purpose of this was not, not to tell people that they should be eating a chocolate bar every day, but rather that that chocolate bar that they grab from time to time from the pharmacy or, you know, from the grocery store checkout is not making or breaking their progress. It's not making them unhealthy. I wanted to show that, you know, in a controlled setting, I was going to have a chocolate bar every day and still lose weight while maintaining a calorie deficit, which just means I was eating less calories than what my body needed so I would lose weight. Now, the sugar from the chocolate bar, surprise, surprise, did not cause fat storage or weight gain. I included the bar alongside my nutritious meals, all while tracking my intake to ensure I was in a calorie deficit, and I ended up losing seven pounds. I actually recorded the entire process, um, which you can find in my 
story re, uh, my story highlights on my Instagram page, which is Carrie Lee Fitness, which we'll uh, tag in the show notes um, if you wanna if you wanna follow along. Um, but all that to say, um, you know, sometimes we point the finger at these single things like, oh, I had a cookie, I was bad, or I had a piece of cake, like, oh my gosh, like this is why I'm not healthy. And it's just such a bigger picture. And fat gain, like how does it actually occur? Well, it's when we consistently consume more calories than our body uses, okay? So it's not the sugar, but like, yes, many sugary foods are calorie dense, which make it easier to overeat excess calories. But it is the calories, the excess of calories, not the sugar itself, that contributes to weight gain. And even that, you know, it comes down to like overall lifestyle. You know, a lot of us are living sedentary lifestyles where we're not moving very much. Um, You know, so it's your overall lifestyle as a whole, more so than just that chocolate bar. You know, should we be eating more whole foods, more nourishing whole foods? Of course. I am not here saying that we should just be eating chocolate bars and and candy all day long, but, you know, give yourself a break if you want to enjoy a sweet treat from time to time. Now, here's a crucial point I want to emphasize. Demonizing and restricting specific foods or entire food groups can actually be mentally harmful. It can lead to feelings of guilt, shame, and even foster a negative relationship with food. Food is not just fuel. It's also joy, it's culture, it's celebration. And when we label certain foods as bad or off limits, We're setting ourselves up for a tumultuous relationship with something we interact with multiple times a day. So the takeaway, balance and moderation. Instead of fearing sugar, understand its role in a broader, balanced diet. Be mindful of your overall calorie intake. Enjoy a diverse range of foods. And remember, no single food determines our health or our weight. It's the bigger picture that counts. All right, on to the next myth. We're going to dive deep into a topic that has been all the rage lately, and that is intermittent fasting. With so many claims and testimonials on intermittent fasting, it's time to sift through the noise and get to the heart of the matter. Let's do it. So intermittent fasting, or IF as it's commonly known, has seen a surge in popularity. But as with many trends, it's essential to separate the facts from the fiction, and today we're doing just that. First things first. What is intermittent fasting? At its core, it's just skipping a meal. Yep, that's right. It's not really a magical formula. It's merely restricting your eating to a specific time window. But does it hold any advantages over traditional eating patterns? Let's dive in. A key principle to remember is that weight loss ultimately boils down to a calorie deficit, like I was mentioning when we were speaking about the sugar. Whether you are practicing intermittent fasting or eating three square meals a day, if you consume fewer calories than you burn, you will lose weight. It's the law of thermodynamics, and it's as simple as that. But here's where things get interesting. Proponents of intermittent fasting often claim it offers superior benefits, from boosting metabolism to promoting greater fat loss. But when we look at the actual science, the picture picture isn't so clear-cut. Studies have shown that while intermittent fasting might offer some transient metabolic benefits, its impact on weight loss isn't significantly different from traditional calorie-restricted diets. 
Both approaches can yield similar results if the calorie deficit's maintained. Another crucial factor to consider, and honestly, I think this is the most important thing and, and something I speak about with my clients all the time, is adherence. The effectiveness of any diet hinges on one's ability to actually stick to the diet, right? So some find the structures of intermittent fasting easier to follow. I have clients myself who actually enjoy fasting, and there's nothing wrong with that. But others, and I want to say many, prefer the flexibility of eating throughout the day. You know, it's all about personal preference, right? I mean, if you're someone who, let's say you're a parent, you have children that are up early, you have a really high-in-demand job in the morning, or you work out in the morning, you're probably going to need to get some nutrients in first first thing in the day, right? So it really depends on lifestyle as well. Um, But I do want to talk about a potential pitfall when it comes to intermittent fasting, and that's nutritional adequacy. With a limited eating window, there's a risk of missing out on essential nutrients. It's vital to plan your meals carefully to ensure you're getting all the nutrients your body needs. And let's not forget individual variations, right? Like I said before, we're all unique. And what works wonders for one might not for another. You know, factors like age, genetics, lifestyle, and even underlying health conditions can influence how our bodies respond to different diets. So in conclusion, while intermittent fasting might not seem like the latest and greatest, might seem like the latest and greatest, it's not inherently superior to other approaches. Uh, The key is finding what aligns with your lifestyle, preferences and goals, and ultimately what you can stick to. I think it's okay to practice fasting if, if you really like it, but you don't have to be and identify as an intermittent faster. You know, it's okay if you want to go out for breakfast on a weekend, you haven't messed up, you know, and I think that is one of the biggest takeaways with that. All right, on to the next myth. This one's a little bit sweaty. Uh, Ever finished a workout drenched and thought, wow, I must have burnt a ton of calories today. We have all been there, but does breaking a sweat really mean you're torturing those calories? Let's dive in and demystify this myth. So, First, let's think about our beautiful Bermudian summers. If sweating buckets equaled massive calorie burn, we'd all be thin like supermodels by September, right? But as we know, even after those sweltering August days, our weight doesn't magically drop. So where did this myth come from? Historically, the idea probably stems from some old school fitness beliefs. Picture those like vintage workout videos where the instructor's gleaming with sweat, encouraging you to feel the burn. You know, the more you sweat, the harder you're working, right? Like, if you're not sweating, you're not working hard enough. No pain, no gain. Well, not quite. Sweating is our body's natural air conditioner. When our internal temperature rises, our sweat glands release moisture to help cool us down. It's a survival mechanism, not a calorie burner. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, but when I do a high-intensity workout, I sweat more and surely burn more calories than like a gentle walk. And you're not wrong. High-intensity activities typically burn more calories than low-intensity ones. But here's the catch. It's not the sweat that's the indicator of the calorie burn. It's the intensity and type of activity you're doing. Let's break it down with a little bit of science. A study from Sports Medicine highlighted that factors like genetics fitness level, and even clothing can influence how much we actually sweat. 
Two people can do the exact same workout, and one might emerge looking like they took a dip in the ocean, while the other just has a light sheen or sparkle. Does that mean one worked harder than the other? Not necessarily. Our bodies are unique, remember, and how much we sweat is influenced by a myriad of factors. Now here is a fun fact. Did you know that you can also sweat while swimming? Yep, even in the cool water, your body can release sweat. But because you're submerged, you don't notice it. So imagine thinking you didn't get a good workout after you just swam like 20 laps just because you didn't feel sweaty after. It's a bit silly, right? So let's circle back to our main question. If sweating isn't a reliable calorie burn indicator, what is? It's about the effort you're putting in, your heart rate, and the type of activity. A heart rate monitor can give you a more accurate picture of how hard you're working, but even then, I think it's so essential to remember that exercise isn't just about burning calories. It's about building strength, improving endurance, boosting mental health. I mean, it's basically the fountain of youth. And focusing solely on calories burned for weight loss isn't a great approach. And truthfully, when it comes to weight loss, like it's much easier to control the amount of calories you take in through your diet. For example, one workout, let's say, burns three to 400 calories. Yet, swapping out your frappuccino, you know, the really fancy kind of milkshakey ones that I know a lot of people know and love, I'm not saying that they're bad, but swapping out a frappuccino for a black coffee or tea could save upwards of 600 calories. So, it in turn, like, it's so much easier to make small adjustments to your diet, you know, ask for dressing on the side, limit liquid calories, you know, add more veggies to your plate, like focus on portion sizes, then trying to burn, you know, thousands of calories, which is just going to lead to burnout. So before we wrap up this topic, I do want to touch on something crucial. This myth, like many others, can sometimes lead us down a path where we're chasing numbers Whether it's the number of sweat droplets or the number on the scale, it's easy to become fixated. But I urge you to shift your perspective. Focus on how you feel after a workout. Energized, stronger, happier, proud of yourself. Those are the real indicators of a successful session. So the next time you finish a workout, whether you're drenched or just slightly glistening, give yourself a pat on the back. And remember, it's not about the sweat. It's about the effort and the fact that you did something. I think that's amazing. All right, on to the next myth, myth number four. Have you ever seen folks lifting those, you know, those tiny pastel-colored dumbbells for countless reps aiming to tone up? Or maybe you've been advised to avoid heavy weights to prevent getting too bulky. Let's set the record straight, all right, rep by rep. You've probably heard it countless times. I don't want to bulk up, I just want to tone. But what does toning really mean? Let's break it down. First, let's address the elephant in the room. The term toning has been thrown around by fitness professionals and enthusiasts alike. But here's the truth bomb. Toning isn't really a thing. Yep, you heard that right. Muscles don't tone in the way many people think they do. So what can muscles do then? Well, they can hypertrophy, meaning they can grow in size. They can atrophy, which means they can shrink or waste away. And of course, they can maintain their current size. That's it. There's no magical toning or sculpting process where muscles suddenly become more defined without growing in size. This 
really is just like these are fancy marketing terms to sell, you know, workouts or workout classes, get people in the door, which I mean, ultimately, any form of exercise you're doing is incredible. The fact that you're moving your body, even if it is like a sculpt in tone or, or whatever it is, I am not putting down, you know, these types of classes. I just want to, you know, clear the misconception that there's like a difference between growing muscle and toning muscle. So it like the idea that lifting weights will tone your muscles while heavy weights will make you bulk up, you know, muscles grow when they're subjected to stress. And that stress comes from lifting weights. So whether the weights are light or heavy, the key is actually the intensity and volume of your workout. So if you're a newbie in the gym, you know, five pounds to you might be the equivalent of, you know, 30 or 40 pounds for someone who's been a seasoned lifter. So, you know, when, when it comes to like intensity, and again, like the volume of your workout, think about, you know, how close you are taking your muscles to failure, where you can't lift anymore. Now, I'm not saying everybody should go up there and start lifting and pushing to failure. You know, that's definitely more of an advanced technique. However, if, you know, lifting five pounds, your first two reps should look a lot different than your last two reps. You know, if you're going on 20, 25 reps and, and you're holding on a conversation or whatever, you could probably lift a little bit heavier. And, you know, when most people talk about toning, what they're often referring to is actually a combination of building some muscle, um, but also losing fat. So it's the loss of fat that actually reveals the muscle underneath, giving that toned appearance. So if we're trying to lose fat, but we don't have muscle, what we're going to end up looking like is is more skinny fat because we're not going to have the muscle underneath, right? And if we're trying to lose weight, without strength training and eating adequate protein, we can actually, it can cause muscle atrophy where we lose muscle alongside fat while we're losing weight. And that, that's not a great thing either. So, you know, if you're lifting super lightweights for endless reps, thinking you're toning your muscles, you may want to reconsider, you know, and get a better return on investment of your time in the gym. You know, to truly get that defined look, you need to build muscle. And that requires lifting weights that challenge you. And remember, like building muscle also boosts your metabolism, helping you burn more calories even at rest. And there are a multitude of other benefits that have to do with having more muscle mass. I mean, posture, health and well-being, increased libido, you know, prevention of injuries. Like I could go on and on, like ultimately your quality of life as you age, you know, all can tie in with you getting a bit stronger and putting on some muscle. So, you know, on the flip side, like if you are worried about getting too bulky and I believe in, you know, people having like body autonomy, it's okay for you to want to look a certain way. You know, there's no shame in that. But like, just know this, building significant muscle mass, it takes time, effort, and often like a really targeted nutrition plan where most of these people are eating a surplus of calories. So excess calories for a long period of time, which most aren't, aren't going to be doing. So, you know, simply lifting heavier weights won't turn you into a body, bodybuilder overnight. You know, if you think of like, like a new mom, like you have a baby in like a car seat. I mean, it's probably 20 pounds right there, right? But yeah, in the gym, we're afraid to pick up a 20 pound dumbbell, you know, so it's just kind of thinking about it in that way. 
you know, and let's not forget about nutrition. So if you are trying to get toned, you want to showcase those muscles you've worked hard to build, you do need to focus on the diet. You know, shedding excess fat is primarily achieved through a calorie deficit. You know, eating fewer calories than you burn, as I've said before. Um, I do talk about this a lot on my Instagram page as well, so you can see more. If you are interested or want to ask me more on that, you can head over there and we can further this conversation. Um, But yeah, keeping your protein intake high and, you know, just kind of focusing on the food that's going in as well. All right, so the last topic that we're going to dive into in this episode is a topic that, you know, has been... Oh, all around the wellness community for such a long time. I see it, you know, if I walk into a health food store or a pharmacy, um, you know, and that is body cleanses and detoxes. You know, you'll especially see this promoted in the new year or, you know, after Christmas when they're, you know, the marketing teams are kind of brilliantly playing on your pain points, knowing that you probably feel guilty for overindulging and like, you know, I really want to get to the bottom of this. So, you know, whether it's like those juice cleanses or those fancy lemon cayenne drinks, herbal teas, um, you know, let's set this record straight. The idea of detoxing our bodies, it's not actually new. It's been around for thousands of years. But here's the catch. The modern day cleanses and detox products, they don't actually remove toxins. Shocking, right? Um, So our body, especially our liver, is a marvel of nature. It's like a sophisticated factory processing everything we consume from food and drinks to medications. It extracts nutrients, distributes them throughout your body, and discards the waste. There's no special magic when you mix cayenne pepper with lemon. It's just uh, spicy lemon water. So what about these popular detox teas and cleanses? I'm sure you know someone who swears by them as a quick weight loss solution. You know, I lost 10 pounds and at best you might lose some water weight because, well, you're not eating much. And most detox teas have a laxative effect. So you're basically leaving pounds of water weight in the bathroom. At worst, you could starve, disrupt your gut flora, experience nutrition def- nutrient deficiencies, or even suffer from electrolyte imbalances. Not so glamorous now, is it? So how can we best support our bodies in their natural detox processes? This is something we can dive into. Here's some tips. Stay hydrated. Drinking plenty of water helps flush out toxins and support kidney function. Eat a balanced diet, consuming a variety of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains ensures you get necessary nutrients and antioxidants that aid detoxifications. You know, include more plants in your diet. This one's not going to come as a surprise, but exercise regularly. Physical activity boosts circulation and helps eliminate toxins through sweat. Get enough sleep. A good night's rest allows your body to repair and regenerate. And this one shouldn't really come as a shocker, but avoid smoking and limit alcohol as most you can. Both can damage your liver and other vital organs. In essence, like true health isn't about quick fixes or fancy drinks. It's about understanding, respecting, and nurturing our bodies. By following these simple guidelines, we can ensure our organs function optimally and keep us feeling our best. Our bodies truly are incredible. And remember, with the right care, they can serve us well for years to come. Well, that is a wrap for this episode. If you liked what you heard today and want to learn more about how to navigate this crazy fitness industry 
lose weight sustainably, and live your healthiest, happiest life, you can find me over on Instagram and TikTok as Carrie at Carrie Lee Fitness. Thank you for listening. I look forward to the next episode. And that wraps up today's episode. A big thank you to our sponsor, the Lindos Group of Companies. Remember, why go anyplace else? I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's discussion. Head over to our social media pages at The Royal Gazette and at RG Megs on both Instagram and Facebook and share your insights with us. Until next time, Bermuda, stay healthy and stay inspired.